there was a, a particular joining between recognizing the need for community health alongside different groups, uh, primarily the Black Panthers was one to recognize that need. This is Wine, Women, and Revolution with your host, Heather Warburton. and welcome to Wine, Women, and Revolution. I'm your host, Heather Warburton, coming at you here on Create Your Future Productions. You can find us online at www.yourfuturecreator.com. Follow us on all the social medias and get us wherever you get your podcasts from. Today, well, let me start off first with... A little disclaimer for this. I'm not a medical professional. The person I'm interviewing is not a medical professional. So neither one of us are trained practicing doctors, but we are going to be talking a little bit about street medicine tonight. And this is kind of the first episode in a new series I'm going to start bringing you. Um, Practical skills on how to survive whatever may be coming. Things are kind of tumultuous right now. We don't really know what the future looks like. There's civil unrest, climate change, just natural disasters. There's all kinds of things that really kind of could be impacting us in the future. So I'm going to lay out some practical organizing, survival, and as we're talking about today, street medicine skills for you guys to really use no matter what situation you might find yourself in. So without further ado, let me introduce to you my guest. They're a good comrade of mine. I've known them for years now. We've organized together. Pinky, welcome to the show. Hey, Heather. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me as well. Well, Thank you for being here. Like I said, you're a great comrade. I love some of the work you guys are doing with your organizations that you're a part of. But tonight, I really wanted to talk about you've been trained in street medicine, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, So I can give a little bit of, you know, my own personal background as well as kind of general um, history in this part of the world regarding street medicine and really where it came from and then kind of what that looks like now. Uh, Perfect. So let's see here. I have been doing street medic work for about, I would say, a year and a half, two years roughly in New Jersey and, you know, our surrounding region. And it's kind of what made me feel more comfortable slipping into that role as opposed to other roles that I've had um, is just kind of some ancillary uh, background in terms of just uh, more professional stuff that I've done. So I'm first aid certified and CPR certified um, and have done that informally as a part of different jobs that I've had. Um, So that was something I felt comfortable doing, obviously not in the capacity of a doctor or anything like that, but I felt confident in terms of typical or average things you would see within the context of protests or, you know, being on the street or a variety of different capacities. So really, I guess where the, I guess, history of street medicine can be traced in the United States, at least, is from what I can tell is um, it got its start in the early 60s during the civil rights era. Uh, particularly uh, because of state response to protests being violence and repression. And there was a, a particular joining between recognizing the need for community health alongside different groups, uh, primarily 
the Black Panthers was one to recognize that need, but um, was also able to incorporate street medicine and other aspects of what we could consider community health-based to that. So among the large movement at that time, communities that were more disenfranchised slash, you know, really saw a need for this. We're dealing with things like, you know, I just mentioned violence at protests, lack of community care from the state, right? So one, and this, this may sound silly, but one of the primary reasons being lack of garbage collection, lack of presence of um, lead and rental properties, um, you know, things that, that seem so basic that we have now. Um, there was really a lacking of infrastructure for things that would create a need for this. So the big issue, um, as I mentioned, having to do with kind of the response against state violence primarily had to do with uh, things like tear gas and, you know, being physically beat by cops, which, you know, we see a lot of that crossover now, but it was also tied to, again, community health issues. So that's where the two things kind of met and evolved into different community-based programs as well. So that's kind of a general, a very general history. I'm sure there's maybe stuff that I may have missed or didn't exactly cover, but that gives you kind of a general idea. No, I think you did a good job of summing it up there. And how it's been described to me is your goal is to help keep people be able to either keep protesting or determine if they need real, actual doctor intervention in a situation. And it doesn't just range even from cuts or tear gas. It could be people aren't prepared for the weather. You know, they may be dehydrated. They may get hypothermic, things like that. So there's a wide range of things you might be covering as a street medic, right? No, that's absolutely um, very accurate. And, you know, something I want to just elaborate a little bit on that you mentioned um, is when, you know, we really want to be there for the community and express solidarity to where people do not have to rely on the state or have to rely on the police or any other oppressive arm of the state to get what they need. Now, ultimately, if we, you know, assess the situation and decide medical intervention beyond our capacity needs to be done, then we're able to do that. But there are ways that you can navigate that, that enable you to, you know, not have to bring in police or anything like that. So just to clarify. Yeah, because there's a real um, chance that you might get arrested at a protest. And if you have to call in the paramedics, for example, police often come with those paramedics. So people, you know, they they could be, so a street medic can also help navigate. There may be a clinic set up nearby that they can take people to. It's all part of that protest organizing. There's a lot that goes into making everybody at a protest be able to pull off their mission successfully. And street medicine is a big part of that, even if it doesn't always the most seen part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would um, say that I think it is a bit of an um, unseen and um, perhaps misunderstood aspect of a protest. Um, I don't mean anything particular by that other than I think it's something that people are a little bit more unfamiliar with. 
Whereas, I mean, I remember showing up to one particular protest where typically, for example, um, you, you know, you may wear like different patches or thing, symbols that s- signify that you are a street medic. So that would be the classic, you know, Red Cross, like I said, as well as a distinguishing patches or anything like that. And I have had on more than one occasion, people come up and inquire about that and really just not know that we're there to provide a service and also to, you know, ultimately help folks out. I think the biggest thing that I saw at protests over the summer was folks not hydrating properly, which was a really big issue in terms of some people needing to remove themselves from the protest and take a seat, hydrate get something to eat, and then they were able to rejoin. But that was the biggest thing that I saw, just given the summer that we had in New Jersey. Yeah, Um, it was very warm this summer. And a lot of, I think, new people that were not used to a protest at all, maybe it was their first time protesting anything, showed up to these Black Lives Matter protests, and they weren't prepared. Okay, like, this could be, you could be walking for miles. I might need to have a bottle of water with me and have comfortable shoes. So no, exactly. hot and cold probably are the main things that you see in street medic. I would agree. I would agree with that as well. It seems to be um, while there can be issues, I mean, in some more extreme circumstances, I have seen street medics have to deal with instances where people have been injured um, in one way or another. But most of what I've seen in terms of my personal experience has been really the weather and perhaps folks not knowing how to prepare in advance for being out in the sun all day or being in certain extreme weather situations. Um, That being said, though, I figured I could talk a little bit about how I prepare for a if I'm going to do a street medic. Yeah, uh, I think that would be a good lead know, in well, before we start talking about like situations you might see as a street medic and that more how it relates yeah, to other absolutely. people. But how you prepare would be a great, you know, most people probably wouldn't get this information elsewhere. Well, yeah, absolutely. So it took me a bit to kind of think creatively about how to execute this. And it took a little bit of practice on my part. But essentially what I have is a uh, put together medic bag which I was able to source all of the materials for relatively free to low cost. So I have that prepped in my house at all times, just in case the need is there. So having that together beforehand, so you're able to just grab it whenever you need it is really important. Um, So I keep things in as sterile condition as I can, just due to not only COVID concerns, but also concerns about, you know, other bacteria, germs, things like that. But Some general things that I keep, I keep a bag that has bandages, gauze, disinfectant, gloves. I also have masks as well. Oh, let's see what else. Um, I also have, I have a CPR kit as well that I got from a training that I did in addition to that. So in case there ever is a need for that, you're able to give CPR without having direct contact with somebody's mouth, which is a particular concern as of now. Right. But the big thing in terms of, you know, things that I keep stashed are just your basic general medical supplies that you'll find in a first aid kit, water in addition to that, and snacks as well. So really just, I don't try to think too hard about what I may need, things you may want to watch out for, though, anything that's too heavy, um, you're not going to be able to necessarily get to 
the point that you need to if you're lugging like a 30 pound backpack, you know, over the course of a few miles. So really most of it's more common sense than anything in terms of medical supplies and then um, keeping in mind common medical conditions like diabetes or dehydration, things like that. So I always try to keep snacks, water, basic medical supplies. And I think that's stuff that I think anyone might want to keep a kit of that prepared by their door just in case, you know, that there's a flood or maybe you keep it in your car in case you come upon a car accident or you yourself find yourself in a car accident or if you go hiking, especially. I know a lot of street medicine is very tied into outdoor or wilderness medicine. There's a lot of the same techniques and overlap there where if you find yourself five miles off the trail, you know, you may not be able to get help right away. Absolutely. I would definitely agree with that as well, which, um, you know, having a little bit of background in the wilderness aspect of that, I would 100% agree. So let's start from, I guess, we'll start with the triage. When you arrive, you know, when you are first encountering a patient, what kind of things do you do to assess the patient? Um, Well, first off, I mean, initially what I look for is the just general state they're in. So if I am dealing with somebody, for example, who is incredibly dehydrated, you want to look for certain basic signs, such as they're not sweating, right, because they're not able to perspire because they are so incredibly dehydrated. You want to look for paleness. You want to look for eye response and eye movement response, as well as whether they're lightheaded or dizzy, which obviously somebody who's dehydrated may not be screaming, right, where that could be different if somebody gets injured or something like that. Um, So I would say general reading the situation for what it is, is really important. I've been in some situations where, you know, people have been under more duress where you obviously know, you know, hey, this person's having a very large emotional response. I may investigate that a bit quicker as opposed to pulling somebody aside and checking in and not calling attention to what's going on. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, and do you actually find yourself having to do a little bit of, I don't want to say like psychiatric help, but if somebody's having a a very, you know, strong response to something, you know, if they've never seen police violence before and here they are being the victim of it, they might have a much stronger emotional response. Do you find yourself having to be a bit of a therapist at times too? (laughs) I would say yes. I would say yes with that. I mean, a a lot of the medic roles that I've done have also kind of combined, I don't want to say marshalling isn't the exact correct word, but also more, I don't want to say people management, but more surveying of situations and things like that. So I guess a marshalling role as well. So, you know, certain people may have more of a visceral response if they're not used to being under high pressure situations where things can you know, turn on a dime in a certain sense. So that is definitely a component as well. Yeah, that probably um, falls into just you have to do some basic situational situational awareness when you're in when you're acting as a street medic because every patient may not be coming to you. You may have to see what's going on. Absolutely. So you kind of have to have that heightened level of alertness to the whole crowd and situation. Absolutely. And then there's the aspect I haven't encountered this too much, but then there are some people who do not want help even though they may need it. So it's also, you know, learning to spot situations and how people react. So I would definitely agree. 
So I guess I want to get into some of the more, I guess, like nitty gritties, like, you know, things about, you know, first aid, let's start with somebody comes to you, and they're bleeding. What do you do? Or you you find yourself bleeding in a situation? (laughs) So if I have if I have somebody that that is bleeding, I mean, the first thing that you want to follow, and this is a, a general good guide to look up, which I wanted to mention. Um, so I can't pronounce the person's name because it I think it's German or maybe Swedish, Scandinavian, something like that. There is a really excellent book out there that is available for free download. You can find it on the internet. It's called Riot Medicine. And there's also um, several street medic handbooks that were produced during the Occupy movement. But kind of the first thing that you want to look at, which the both the varying street medic handbooks as well as riot medicine details, um, in addition to any first aid class that you may take, first you want to make sure you're wearing gloves if somebody is bleeding. So that would be the first thing I would do. I would put on a fresh pair of gloves. I would, let's say, you know, somebody has a, let's say a cut on their arm or, you know, they tripped, fell, something like that. Um, I would put gloves on, disinfect the area, inspect whether or not I can see bone. I know that sounds kind of gross, but, you know, you want to inspect to see the severity. And, you know, depending on that severity, put pressure on it for a certain amount of time, see if it stops bleeding. The big questions that you want to ask yourself is, can the person move whatever it is that's bleeding or, you know, if they think maybe they sprained their wrist or broke their wrist and, you know, there's some blood, you want to assess whether they can move that or not. If they cannot, if they're, the, the certain telltale signs would be they cannot move it, the bleeding does not stop. But essentially what you want to do is you want to assess and see, you know, whether or not it is something to your capacity. Because if it's something that won't stop bleeding, if something, if somebody clearly cannot move it or they're having a lot of pain, there are certain markers that this is something that I personally cannot handle. So if it's something that I cannot handle or you know <clears throat> another street medic cannot handle then that's the time that we would call in uh, paramedics or something like that um, so that's that's the big thing but most of these situations that I've been in have not been as severe as that it has been more of a clean the person up check see how they're doing wrap it up and they're able to go on their way so something I saw when I was doing research for this interview was yeah. a lot of street medical books say don't use hydrogen peroxide to disinfect wounds. Is that actually true? Like, I've been doing that my whole life. <laughs> I mean, you can use a variety of different antiseptics and things like that. Really, you want to use something that has antibacterial properties I'm not so familiar regarding not using hydrogen peroxide, so perhaps that's not something I feel comfortable commenting on so much. Okay. <laughs> but um, really, any general antiseptic wash is going to be good for the time being. Um, so if hydrogen peroxide is what you have, it's what you have. Um, but... Uh, I welcome varying opinions as well on that. Well, if you're perhaps a medical professional, 
and would like to leave a comment about this that, you know, I will definitely pass it along to everyone. Um, That was just something I saw from doing a little bit of street medicine research. And I guess the next thing I wanted to talk about a little bit was CPR in a situation. Is it good to start CPR? Um, You know, what's what kind of level of training is it best to have if you're going to be doing CPR? Is it, I've read a book, I might know how to, is it best just not to start if you don't have training? Yeah, so I am um, CPR certified myself, so that's something that I can do. My personal opinion on that is you should be CPR certified and trained to administer CPR uh, because unfortunately there can be, if you do it the wrong way, you can end up doing more harm than good um, in terms of the way you perform it. It is a little hard to describe, but it's not like what you see on TV in the movies. Um, they've actually, within the past, I can't recall the exact official organization, but they actually did recently revise the CPR guidelines in terms of even like the reps you're supposed to do uh, per minute. So there's been updates and changes and things like that. So the best uh, thing to do in that situation is to really, I would say, take a class and really get the great resources from that. And there are a number of free trainings and discounted trainings that varying radical organizations offer um, throughout the region that will be able to provide folks for that. So that would be uh, kind of my general advice on that. But my sort of experience in terms of street medicine is the vast majority, if not all of the street medics I've worked with, um, know how to administer CPR. So, you know, if you are at a protest and there is a healthy street medic presence, if you, as just a bystander, you know, witness somebody having some type of event where they need CPR, call over a street medic, they're more than likely will be able to know how to help. So I guess the next big thing that is probably the mo- what the next most likely thing after weather-related things would be pepper spray and tear gas and how you deal with those. Like, you know, some people swear by milk. Other people say just use water. Some people even say traces of milk on you might cue the cops to focus in on you later if they see milk on you. So what's kind of the verdict about that? Yeah. So that was kind of a, I think, and I, I'm sure I know exactly what you're touching on in terms of, you know, people saying pour milk on your eyes if you uh, get pepper sprayed or tear gas. Don't do that. It is actually not very true at all that milk does not help you any more than water helps you. So anything that is going into your eyes needs to be able to be flushed out. So in the event that um, you do get tear gassed, water is going to be a better solution than the vast majority of other liquids. Now I have heard, I haven't had this 100% verified, but from what I recall when I was speaking to a few other street medic friends at the time is that I think where people are getting tripped up is it's actually milk of magnesia and not just regular cow's milk. So I think there's a bit of a slip up there, but yes, milk, unfortunately, is not really gonna help you at all. So would you handle someone differently if they'd been pepper sprayed versus being tear gassed or is it roughly the same treatment for both? 
my inkling, I'm not sure the big differences. In ter- I mean, I know there is a chemical difference between tear gas and pepper spray, but um, based upon the different trainings in terms of first aid and things like that, the best thing to my knowledge that people will have on hand to flush out anything would be water. Um, another thing to point out, though, that folks don't often realize is to not wear contact lenses at protests and in part because of that because what will actually end up happening is it'll get caught within the contact itself so someone will actually either you or someone will have to take out your contact for you um, and you won't be able to if you don't you won't be able to properly remove that from your eye potentially causing more damage so if you absolutely have to wear contacts make sure you are wearing sealed goggles over your face um, but wear glasses if you can. That's a big, a big thing that folks don't often think about. Right, because even if you do manage to take them out successfully at the scene, now your contacts are out and you can't see anything. <laughs> so exactly. you may exactly. be creating another hazard where you're tripping over things because you're not wearing your contacts. Exactly. All right, so I guess the final injury that I wanted to touch on that somebody may encounter or have to diagnose in themselves might be a concussion. How do you determine if somebody has a concussion or if you yourself have a concussion? Absolutely. Concussions can be a little bit tricky. It's not something that I personally have dealt with in terms of assessing um, in a street situation. However, I have had to assess it within varying jobs that I've had. The big thing you want to look out for is, did this person lose consciousness and for how long? That's a big thing. Not that concussions can't happen um, without loss of consciousness. They can. But the big thing is loss of consciousness. You want to look for difference in pupil size. You want to look for light reactivity. And you want to look for if there, this is a little bit after the fact, but if there's any memory issues or experiences in time how somebody experiences events. So those are the big things. Um, If somebody does lose consciousness, that is a situation that uh, personally, I think street medics would be able to attend to. However, at the same time, also calling the paramedics for a situation like that. Right, because brain injuries can be very severe. And I think we almost underestimate how much concussions really do cause damage to the brain. Oh, exactly. And even in terms of, you know, basic concussion treatment, um, you know, folks aren't even supposed to sleep for a certain period of time because it can actually um, cause damage to the brain under that circumstance. So those are the things um, that I would look out for in terms of that. If anybody, you know, let's say somebody got hit with a baton or, you know, was pushed, hit their head, lost consciousness, that would be a situation where I would, you know, remove that person as safely as I could, and then contact paramedics to go and assess that person. Right. I guess that's kind of the one thing of every street medic may have a differing amount of training. So they'll all have a point where they'll say, this is outside of what I can handle. I've got to pass you off either to a different street medic or to the paramedics that it's not really a uniform training. Everyone's probably a volunteer who's taken some amount of training. Absolutely. And that's the kind of thing to stress here is a lot of folks, you know, are involved in street medics either or in street medicine, rather, are in, 
involved because they're volunteers um, or have some training to some capacity, the vast majority of people are not doctors or nurses or medical professionals. Now that doesn't mean, you know, folks don't have training or aren't capable at what they're doing. It just means that, um, you know, their role is different than, say, a doctor. Right. You're probably not going to be performing open heart surgery on the corner of Broad <laughs> and Fifth Street, you know. <laughs> correct. Correct. I mean, I, I think the most important thing is ultimately us being able to, you know, if there's a situation that we feel like we cannot handle, being able to safely remove that person without involving them getting in contact with the police or anything like that is to be able to safely remove them from the situation and get them the help that they need. Well, maybe we should touch on that a little bit about removing somebody oh, yeah. from a dangerous situation and how to do that safely. Absolutely. I mean, that can look a lot of different ways. I think a lot of it depends on the situation, but I'll, I'll, I can think of a few examples, you know, in my experience where something like that has had to happen. Um, usually a street medic is only one role within a protest. You have a variety of different moving parts to make sure things happen responsibly and safely. Um, you have your marshals, you have security team members, you have street medics, as we've already been talking about, and a variety of other roles. Those are just kind of some general basic ones. But a situation that I can think of where I think we ended up having to medically attend to somebody not um, too extreme in terms of, you know, the injury that they sustained. But um, for example, if you have a situation where fight breaks out between two opposing sides, particularly if it's the left and the right, you may have people who are trying to incite violence. And, you know, you'll have security team members as well as marshals de-escalate the situation. And that way medics are able to go into the situation without fear of physical harm. I, if I'm acting as a street medic, I don't want to be in a situation where I don't have people on my side where I'm going to get punched in the face or something like that. Cause that's uh, you know, I'm trying to perform a service there. So you know, if you have a situation where a fight breaks out, you'll have security team members, marshals, um, and other folks respond to that, de-escalate the situation, and then medics are able to move in at the same time and extract there's an injured person and be able to attend that way. I hope that answers your question a little bit. Uh, yeah, just, yeah. Um, um, I guess just a bit of a follow-up there is, and yeah. as a street medic, do you stay with the patient until you've gotten them totally off the scene? Like if you're performing first aid while trying to remove, you know, move them, for example? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the situation. I mean, I've been in situations where we have had to medically attend to a person and I may have another street medic and myself and then a security team member and another person so that way we're able to stay back safely. It's never just me and an isolated person because depending on the context of that situation, that can get potentially be dangerous to do. So it depends a little bit on the situation. Uh, also, if it's a situation where you're not moving like where it's on the course of a march that's a little bit different if it's let's say it's a protest outside a politician's house or a police station or the a city government building something like that where if it's located on site that makes it a little bit easier to navigate in terms of getting care for someone because you don't have to move or coordinate so much 
All right. I guess I wanted to close out with the last of, you know, outside of a protest situation. We, you know, I want to try to provide some people with some valuable advice they can take into any situation they find themselves in. What are the most important things that somebody needs to know about making sure that they are healthy or that they can treat their own wounds or wounds of a hiking partner or whatever? Absolutely. So I guess as we live in like, uh, you know, a late capitalistic society, medical visits and all that, all that stuff is incredibly, incredibly expensive. And so, you know, learning how to adapt and assess situations and not immediately go to an emergency room if you don't have to is something really important and also could potentially impact people's budgets and livelihoods and things like that. So I think the biggest thing is, you know, injuries around the house, injuries around cooking, injuries around slipping and falling and things like that. Um, the biggest thing, I think, is to calmly try to assess. I know we all have very heightened emotional responses when we get injured, but being able to assess that, as well as building some personal community connections can be important, too. I have a few comrades who are nurses who, when I felt not quite comfortable, I was kind of on the fence about whether or not I needed to go to an emergency room. I was able to, you know, video call them, explain the situation. They were able to offer some insight, not medical advice per se, but they were offered, able to offer me some insight and be able to assess that a little bit. Um, but so I would say those are the biggest things in terms of assessing our own emotional responses, as well as just learning basic first aid. Um, so that would be assessing, you know, your average bumps, cuts, you know, things of that nature, basic burns. Twisted ankles probably are a big thing. At least exactly. if you have bad ankles like I do, <laughs> you know, you're twisting your ankle all exactly. the time. Lear so learning like how to wrap an ankle might be a useful skill also. Exactly. Exactly. Wrapping an ankle, learning how to elevate or putting a splint on and wrapping something so there's, a, you know, very limited if or if no mobility possible. So if there is, you know, if you're hiking on a trail, you slip fall, you think you broke your arm, how do you do that? Right. So learning basic, basic stuff like that is always helpful. All right. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about? I know you're probably not going to want to plug anything, but anything else that you want to talk about before we wrap it up for the night? Yeah, I mean, I think I would just like to mention, you know, for folks who are looking to get more politically involved, I think it's a really excellent thing. You know, we have a lot of people who are becoming more politically educated. It's always a really excellent thing. But do some general research and education about how to move through protests if you're ever interested in going to any. Read up on medical basics read up on security culture and what to look out for um, at protests in terms of, you know, there are even basic things like not talking to people you don't know. Sometimes there are people who may not have the same viewpoint as you, but are pretending to slide in with the crowd. There have been, you know, some situations that I've been in where people have certainly either tried to escalate things or something just didn't quite feel right and I was able to assess, you know, well, why is that? So I think research and education are the most important things as well as building community connection and solid relationships with people. So you know who you're working with, you know who you're at a protest with. 
Yeah. And I mean, I can tell from personal experience, I can share with people that we have had people show up, like for example, we were at Pittman uh, protesting outside of the mines mm-hmm. thing, that we had Proud Boys show up over on our side and start talking to people. And some of them were open, like, hey, I'm a Proud Boy. But then some were being much more shady. There was one guy, I guess, that was moderately attractive who was trying to talk to all the women there and hit on them and flirt with them and try to get information with them. And then ultimately one of the women was getting harassed by this, another guy. So there's a lot of things. There's a lot, they're tricky, you know, like they send out the good looking guy. Like a lot of them are trolls, but they send out the good looking guy and he's chatting up all the women trying to cause damage on your side. So that's absolutely true. Um, and that's a really good point to mention as well. I mean, I think one thing, and I don't think perhaps it's overstated, but but something to always look out for. If you ever see, you know, somebody with a high and tight haircut that either looks like a classic Nazi or cop, always take a look at their shoes. Um, not that it necessarily, you know, 100% means that this person is a cop or a Nazi or anything, but the sort of commonplace knowledge is that those kind of boots are incredibly expensive. So when, you know, you may have a cop who's trying to be a sly undercover or something like that, take a look at their shoes. If they match the shoes of the police, they're more than likely a cop, right? So that's that's something that I've picked up on. And uh, there, there are certain things folks are maybe less experienced, certain things that you'll start to notice that match up, like you mentioned about the uh, the Proud Boys. That's some very not so surprising but the uh it serves a purpose right they're trying to get information Mm -hmm. so it's it's interesting yeah as you mentioned be careful of who you give information out to and uh you know stay with the people you came with and also i thought another funny one just before we close out at pitman we have never i've never seen as many single guys walking a large dog I had that night at Pittman. They must have walked, the cops must have walked sniffing dogs, drug sniffing dogs, bomb sniffing dogs by us at least 10 times, but they were just in normal clothes. But like all of a sudden, it was like within this one hour period, 10 single guys walked their dogs by the crowd. (laughs) And that's something interesting to highlight too, I guess, to just kind of finish up, I I guess, this portion is that um, one thing to always remember is that more often than not, the cops will treat the left um, and us far worse and uh, with far more suspicion and violence than they do the right. And that's for a number of reasons, but you know, primarily being that they have the same interest to uphold the same things and they, they are a part of the same things. So it's, uh, it's yeah. There's, I've been in situations, I remember I had a friend one time who got arrested. His charges ended up being dropped, but he had laundry detergent in his pockets, you know, because he was going to do laundry that day. And they ended up calling the bomb dogs and uh, hazmat because they thought, they didn't really think, but they're like, oh my gosh, this person must be a terrorist or something. You know, this powder, what is it? You know, again laundry detergent but it kind of shows the level of state repression but also the reality of how uh, the state treats us versus 
the Proud Boys or Nazis or the right. Definitely. You will be treated very... If you haven't experienced it, it's almost shockingly different. Like, they're dealing with two... And, you know, the Nazis, you think they're the Nazis, they're the bad guys, but no. We're the bad guys to the police. So it's definitely... Totally a different experience. Well, I just wanted to thank you again for being here tonight. Oh, it's yeah. been great information. This is the first in a multi-part series. Our next one, we're going to have somebody talking about some basic gardening, mutual aid, and you know, self-sustaining your community through feeding your community. But healthcare for your community, feeding your communities, maybe some basic construction stuff we'll be bringing in later. Hopefully you enjoyed this series and want to keep it going. We appreciate anything you can do if you like, share on social media, review us on iTunes, anything you can do to help spread the word and get these messages out there are really appreciated. And finally, monetary support. I'm literally sitting in a tiny, like, eight foot by eight foot bedroom in my house recording this right now. (laughs) And it's, unfortunately, it's just me right now. So if anything you can do to help, you know, I have a Patreon set up. If you can spare a couple of dollars a month or a one-time donation through PayPal, they're all really appreciated. I appreciate you guys so much. The future is yours to create. Go out there and create it.